Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today's show is incredibly important. It's called Anti-Semitism in Medicine means no patient is safe. Imagine being wheeled into the emergency room after you've just had a heart attack or an accident and you're at death's door. Now you need to ask the ER doctor um, if he doesn't like your race or your religion or your political views. Wokeness is bad enough when it gets people or books canceled, but now it can cancel you as well. Today's guest is Dr. Stanley Goldfarb, and he is the chairman of the board of an organization called Do No Harm, which is an amazing organization. I just discovered this organization recently when I saw an article in the New York Post entitled, uh, Watch Out, Anti-Semitism is Soaring in U.S. Medicine. And it goes on to talk about um, some incredible statistics. You know, um, well, first of all, let me, let me uh, before we get into the subject, <laughs> let me give you some um, more description of Dr. Goldfarb. He's the, as I said, he's the chairman of the board of Do No Harm. He has a long career in academic medicine as a professor of medicine at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, one of the uh, schools that are in the news these days for um, rampant anti-Semitism. Um, during the, his career, he was uh, funded by the National Institutes of Health to conduct research on the mechanism of kidney disease, and he has written a lot of papers and done a lot of work in that area. Now, he helped to found Do No Harm after publication of his book called, I love this title, Take Two Aspirin and Call Me by My Pronouns, a call to action to eliminate discriminatory practices in healthcare, including elevating diversity above meritocracy in the admission of students to medical school and the hiring of faculty members. Um, he, he's been, you know, particularly as the uh, chair of the board of Do No Harm, who's been in all kinds of um, media, done all kinds of media interviews, and um, in print, in in television, and, and radio, and um, and also this organization, Do No Harm, does do work. We'll talk a little bit about that too. Um, trying to protect children and adolescents from what's called gender affirming care, which has no scientific research to prove it. And in fact, um, it has many detransitioners who um, have committed suicide or are suing the places that transition to them. So I'm really happy to have you on the show. Um, you know, I want to tell you that this uh, this this creeping of medicine into medicine of anti-Semitism of wokeness altogether. I mean, first it was. Um, uh, gender, you know, how do you how do you conduct a medical school class when you aren't allowed to say that there are two different genders or two different sexes that people are born with and all of that anatomy, for example, how you how you do that um, is another thing. But I have been gradually, as you obviously have been, seeing this wokeness creep into medicine. I mean, you know, it's one thing, to, it was, it's been bad enough to see it cr creep into books and, and things like that. But, um, the more, there have been more and more articles about how medical schools are now not just looking at people's grades, they're looking more at their history, the student's history in social justice. That's that's how they're admitting them. Well, I don't know about you, but if I end up in a hospital, I do not want someone who did a lot of work in social justice, but not a lot in physiology and anatomy and biology and all of the other topics that one has to know in medicine. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be with you. So why don't you, before we get into um, your, or, well, first of all, I guess the book came first. Um, but before we get into that, could you just tell us a little bit more about your background? Like, where did you go to medical school? 
Right. Well, I went to my undergraduate school was Princeton. I went to the University of Rochester School of Medicine, and then I trained at Penn uh, as a uh, internal medicine physician and then as a nephrologist. And I stayed on the faculty for over 50 years at Penn and recently retired. I, and as you mentioned, I was uh, I spent 13 years as the associate dean for curriculum in the medical school. So that sort of gave me some credibility for being able to write about some of these issues, um, particularly vis-a-vis medical education. Uh-huh. Um, okay. Well, when I saw so you must have seen this uh, this New York Times, I mean, New York Post article. It wouldn't be in the New York Times. You must have seen this article uh, yes. that I'm talking about, uh, that I tweeted about. Um, I, it just made me so angry. Um, and that's how I got to you, actually, because I looked up Do Not Do No Harm. Uh, by the way, for people who don't know, um, that is part of the Hippocratic Oath, the oath that medical students have to take upon being graduated from medical school to promise, basically, that you will, no matter what happens, what you do do, you will, under no circumstances, um, will you do harm. So you 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 swear to do no harm and um why don't you take it from there like i i guess uh why where how you how you decided on that name for your organization and so on and what made you decide to do the organization yes well it's a little bit of my story so uh, as i mentioned i was i had this long career in the uh, dean's office at penn and more and more, it became clear to me that what was going on around the country was, as you mentioned before, this creeping wokeism, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and insertion of critical race theory, which I'll, I'll come back to, as sort of the underpinning of medical education. And a, a new a new person came in to be vice dean of education after the woman who ran Penn's educational program, who was my my boss and my colleague. Um, and the, the new person said, you know, you're doing everything all wrong. There needs to be much more advocacy. There needs to be much more uh, teaching about social issues. And that's what prompted me to write my article that was started out in the Wall Street Journal. And that that led to a huge response because Med Twitter lit up. <laughs> uh, there is such a thing as Med Twitter. And they were mostly young people really incensed as the fact that I said, I don't understand why there's a plan to devote more and more time to social justice issues and less and less time to clinical science. As a matter of fact, the, the woman who became the, the the head of the education program told me famously, there's too much science in our curriculum and we oh, need to reduce it. And um, so I wrote the article. Uh, what prompted me to write the article actually was a story in the Wall Street Journal about climate change in medical education in 40 schools had adopted courses on climate change. And I, I, I wrote to the, a letter to the editor saying this was ridiculous um, and we don't know anything about climate change and why are we even going down that path? We should be teaching about, and we, we taught about heat stroke and things like that. I mean, they, these are medical issues, but, but it really was about, again, creating physicians who would advocate, put on their white coats and march down to city hall or wherever to Congress and and make pronouncements as if they knew anything about the topic. And the Wall Street Journal wrote back and said, no, 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 we, we don't know about that article. But I pointed out it really was such an article. And they said, why don't you write an op-ed about this? So that's what prompted the op-ed. Wall Street Journal gave it that title, take two aspirins and call me by my pronouns. And that's, and that's when all hell broke loose because people thought I was uh, somehow being uh, disrespectful of gender issues, which which I'm not and I wasn't. Um, and then that prompted me to write a book, which ended up having the same title. Um, the publisher liked the, the title of the, the article and kept it that. And the book is, you know, is sort of laid out my whole view of medical education and, and healthcare in general and how it was really going into a direction that I thought was was really dangerous. I would just say that Wesley Yang, who's a pretty well-known public intellectual and editor of Esquire magazine, recently wrote a a tweet where he said, he pointed, he cited my article back in 2019 when I wrote the Wall Street Journal article. And he said, gee, don't you wish we had listened to him then? Because I really, you know, was was like Cassandra. Unfortunately, Cassandra in, in Greek mythology was 
sort of predicted disaster, but no one would listen to her. Um, and um, and after that, after the book came out, I the question was, you know, what are we, what am I going to do about this? And fortunately, I I had some good advisors, and we started do no harm. We picked that name just as you said because we thought that really is what this is about. We think that there's harm coming to healthcare, and now it's here to a great extent, and that we need to to push back against it. Um, and push back against discriminatory practices and then push back against gender care, which we'll, we'll come to in a bit. Um, the issue, uh, so we started in April, 2022 and uh, and we've grown really quite dramatically because I think we, we are fulfilling a need that's out there. We have over 6,000 members now and uh, and we've been able to, to work in, in three areas. And I'll just mention those. The, the first area is in informing the public. So going on shows like yours, uh, I was just on with John Solomon right before this. Um, we've written many, many op-eds. You mentioned the one in the New York Post that was rich, written by our our director of research, Ian Kingsbury and Jay Green, very well-known social science researchers. Um, and and so we've we've had a, an impact in in media uh, presentations. Um, and then we've undergone uh, we've acted in the legal and legislative arena. And, and let me just go through a little bit of the detail of those. So in the legal arena, we started out right off the bat suing the federal government. And we sued the federal government in the federal courts because at the end of 2021, the federal government in the Medicare rules came out with a rule that said that if physicians used a um, an anti-racism protocol in their practice, they would get extra money from Medicare when they saw Medicare patients. Now that superficially, that sounds wonderful until you understand what anti-racism yeah, really is. Uh-huh. So anti-racism means that you're going to treat people differently based on their race. You're going to treat people in a way that is based on their skin color and not their clinical needs. So if you have populations of black patients in your clinic, you're going to come up with separate protocols, supposedly to improve their health outcomes as if you're not trying to improve their health outcomes as it is. And whatever these discriminatory practices might look like, if you employed them, you would get extra payments. Well, it turns out during the pandemic, some of the discriminatory practices were giving people, for example, scarce monoclonal antibodies simply because of their skin color. And you would have two people that may even be equally ill. And the one who, who was dark skinned would get the drug not instead of the white skinned person. But sometimes the dark-skinned person wasn't as ill as the white-skinned person. So now we were starting to treat people based on these group characteristics instead of their uh, clinical characteristics, which is all that our organization is really asking for. So um, so we sued the federal government, and that case is, has done very well. And I think that that rule will be rescinded. It takes forever to go through the, the federal courts. But you see, because we're a membership organization. We had two physicians who were our members, and we have over 6,000 members now. And we had two physicians who were really opposed to this. They felt like they had always treated their their minority patients very well, that they had never engaged in any practices that would have led to poor health outcomes. And they they objected to this governmental program. And, uh, and so that lawsuit is going through because it's discriminatory and violates the civil rights laws. We sued um, Pfizer. And we sued Pfizer because Pfizer, like many organizations, many companies, and many healthcare institutions and hospitals, had a program that excluded uh, whites and Asian individuals. Their program at Pfizer was a very rich program where they would hire minority individuals to bring them into the company and give them special programs and pay for their education, give them special opportunities which is fine to do that, but you can't do it on the basis of race. That is illegal. And Pfizer takes money from the federal government and the civil rights laws say that if you 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 take money from the federal government for your activities, you have to abide by the civil rights laws, which preclude this sort of thing. That case is also in the federal courts and working its way through the system. We sued health affairs. We sued the state of Arkansas. Each of these places had programs that specifically said no whites or Asians should apply for these programs. So we've been very active in that arena. And the last arena that we've been very active in as an organization has been in the legislative arena. Now, your your audience may or may not know that almost all of 
Healthcare issues and educational issues are not run at the federal level. They're run at the state level. The federal government pays for a lot, but the regulation of, of healthcare is really a state phenomenon. And, um, and so we've worked with states, and, and it turns out it's mostly states with Republican um, uh, uh, governments, House of Representatives, Senate, and, and Governor, because that's the only place we can really get anything accomplished in this arena. And we've forced um, states to do something about these, these so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. For example, Michigan, where we haven't been successful, it's got a, a Democratic governor is, is well known. Uh, Michigan spent has spent eight, 80, over $80 million in the last five years on the diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at the University of Michigan. That's a lot of money. And the question is, what is this all about? And what is it supposed to accomplish? Yeah. And um, and so we've had bills that we've helped sponsor in Tennessee and uh, Kansas and Iowa and Texas um, that have uh, and, and other states that have uh, pushed back against this and said the state would not fund these kinds of activities in state run universities and in our particular interest in medical schools. So it, these laws have said, for example, that faculty cannot be coerced to sign diversity pledges. They don't have to write a diversity statement that says how they've spent their time trying to promote diversity in their uh, medical school or higher education uh, programs um, in order to get a uh, faculty appointment or to get promoted. Uh, and we've pushed back against the need to have implicit bias training by uh, various um, uh, uh, in, in various programs, uh, which we know doesn't work, is not the evidence for implicit bias as a, a cause of healthcare disparities, which are real. Healthcare disparities are real, but there's no good evidence that they're related to to the efforts of physicians. That physicians aren't trying to do the best thing for their patients, and uh, and it, and this is all sort of a a subterfuge to try to def deflect from the fact that there are real issues in, in minority communities that contribute to poor health outcomes. So um, so we that's what our organization is up to. And we have lots of plans going forward, particularly, and again, in the gender care area, which we can, we can get into a little bit later. Um, what about, are you doing anything about medical schools, you know, um, in terms of their, who they're accepting? Well, the problem, yeah, uh, one of the components of these laws is to at least tell the public what are the criteria for um, for entry into medical school at the state in these various state medical schools like University of Tennessee, University of Iowa, and so on. the The problem here is a is a false notion, and that notion is that um, that the healthcare disparities that particularly Black communities experience is due to Again, bias on the part of physicians. It's a it's an offshoot of critical race theory, which says the way that groups interact is not because of human emotions or feelings or free will. It's because it, everything is a power dynamic. There are the oppressed and there are the oppressors. And basically, that black patients are oppressed by white individuals, particularly in healthcare. It's white doctors that are producing the poor healthcare outcomes that black communities tend to have. And therefore, the only solution to it is to do something about this power dynamic. Now, this is a theory. There's no real evidence that that's the way people interact. And I think most physicians find this to be outrageously, you know, annoying because many, most physicians, when they, they take care of their patients, they worry about their patients, they try to do the best for their patients. And, you know, if there's a, a bad outcome, they feel terrible about it. Not, they don't feel like, oh yeah, I accomplished my goal of trying to hurt someone and give them a, a lesser outcome than, than the other patients they have. And so um, in order to, one of the theories about how this might be minimized. Hey, you this know kind what, of... I'm, Dr. Goldberg, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I was so captivated by what you were talking about. I realized I, I, I missed the fact that we were supposed to take a, um, a break no. two minutes ago. <laughs> um, so before you continue with that, let's just do that so we can get back into what you were saying. Um, first of all, I totally agree with all of it because um, it does not have to do with the doctors uh, thinking, you know, being being racist in one way or the other. Okay, we will be right back. We're talking uh, today to, with Dr. Stanley Goldfarb 
um, who is the chairman of the board of Do No Harm. And we are talking about uh, anti-Semitism in medicine means no patient is safe. So we will be right back and continue. Stay tuned. A little birdie told me Voice America is on X. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Dr. Stanley Goldfarb. He is the chairman of the board of an organization called Do No Harm. I'm very grateful for your having founded that organization. We're talking about um, how medicine is going to hell in a handbasket because of wokeism, um, particularly in terms of anti-Semitism and also in terms of gender. But, you know, if you're thinking that uh, if you're not Jewish and you're thinking that you don't have to worry, um, you know, if medicine, if doctors and hospitals and the AMA and all that are anti-Semitic, you are absolutely wrong because if there are disparities in how people are being, patients are being treated, they're going to be affecting you too. Maybe they, it'll be people who with red hair or people who are a certain um, race or, or religion, of course, or some other uh, characteristic other than who you really are as a person. Um, you know, I, this I got um, connected to Dr. Goldfarb through this article that was in the New York Post called Watch Out, Anti-Semitism is Soaring in U.S. Medicine. And they talk about, um, you know, how many doctors and medical students have torn down posters of kidnapped Israelis, uh, including a professor of medicine, including they, they give the example of a nurse who publicly claimed that allegations of sexual violence committed by Hamas must, must be propaganda since, quote, ain't no Muslim Palestinian resistant fighter touching your women, unquote. And um, there have been, there was a story also in the Post and in various other papers too, not that long ago, about a woman doctor at Lenox Hill Hospital in Manhattan. And Lenox Hill Hospital is a very prestigious hospital. And she was an ER doctor there. and. Um, she did something that was clearly anti-Semitic. Maybe uh, Dr. Goldfarb can take it from there. I don't remember exactly what she did. I just remember I was horrified and she got fired. Do you know the doctor I'm talking about? Uh, I'm not sure. There have been, Unfortunately, there have been several instances <laughs> of this, uh, particularly physicians seen tearing down the posters of the uh, kidnapped uh, hostages in, in that are now in Gaza still. Um, and And of course, you know, you talked about the Hippocratic Oath and do no harm's relationship to that. Um, the, you know, a physician who does that suggests that their empathy, their ability to think about the suffering of others is flawed. Yeah. And that really makes you very concerned. But I, I was, uh, before the break, I was, I was sort of getting, I think, just creating the understanding of where this all came from. So l let me pursue that yeah, issue. So, so the idea has been that uh, because minority patients, black patients have poor health outcomes, that one of the solutions ought to be having more black doctors and that black doctors will treat black patients differently. There is no good evidence for that. The same uh, uh, individuals, uh, Ian Kingsbury and Jay Green, who wrote that New York Post op-ed, have produced a, a very uh, uh, careful study of the literature on racial, so-called racial concordance between patients and physicians. And it turns out there really is no evidence for a benefit of black patients having black doctors. What black patients want, just like any other patient, they want the best doctor. They want to be cured if they have something that's curable. They want to be have their suffering relieved if that's what's available to them and they want it done in the most uh, you know careful and and you know, high quality manner that's possible that's what they want they're no different than anyone else and the idea that they're going to uh, view their world through a racial lens if they do it's very unfortunate and that's un-american it's not something that we should really really support and yet that's a very prevalent idea in american medicine therefore there's been this great effort to increase the number of black 
physicians. Now that's fine if everybody that's being hired is highly qualified, but that's not the case. And the proof that that's not the case have been some studies now of the performance of minority individuals who we can't trace exactly how they got into medical school, but we know that increasingly there's been an attempt to change the criteria for entry into medical school, to change the criteria for selection into the most competitive training positions, to train to change the the basis for uh, for um, the uh, assessment in medical school and the assessment in residency programs, all of which has been aimed at sort of uh, trying to create a, a circumstance where uh, minority individuals who are not doing well or not or won't be identified as not doing well. Uh, for example, just to give some proof of what I'm saying. There was a, an article in the wall in the New England Journal, a very prestigious medical journal, maybe the most prestigious, that was entitled, Do We Overplease Black Residents? Meaning that more black residents are sanctioned, are removed from their training programs than white residents as a proportion of their numbers. And does that mean that they're that we're doing it, we're being too harsh with them? There's never a consideration of the fact, well, maybe they just weren't doing well because they were selected under criteria that were less stringent than other individuals. And we know that that's the case. For example, my medical school, the former medical school, University of Pennsylvania, has a program with 10 uh, histor uh, with historically Black colleges and universities where each year they're going to take 10 students in who have not been required to take the medical college achievement test, but simply have to maintain a 3.2 average and have to have done reasonably well in their um, in their uh, high school record uh, that qualified their admissions. Well, the reason for the medical college achievement test is to find out who's really going to be successful as a medical student. It was put in in the 1930s because so many people were flunking out of medical school because of poor performance. They wanted to identify who was really capable. So having students that enter medical school without taking standardized tests, I think clearly starts to dilute the quality of the students, the academic achievement, certainly, of the students that are there. And in terms of residency training programs, part one of the licensure, there's a three-part licensure exam that medical students have to take over several years to get their medical licenses in the United States. The part one used to have a grading system that residency programs would look at in order to identify who should be accepted into the most rigorous training programs like thoracic surgery or brain surgery or uh, ophthalmology or dermatology. These are the most highly sought specialties. That program is now pass-fail. And the reason for that was said by the deans of medical schools who made this decision. And their, the basis for their decision was not enough minority students were being accepted into these programs. We had to change the criteria. So this is the old story of people aren't doing well. The best thing to do is to stop measuring how they're doing, and then you won't have people who aren't doing so well. Well, it's obviously absurd to do that. So our organization has been pushing back against this, this idea that we should treat people based on their group characteristics. And that's where we come to the issue of anti-Semitism, because that idea, that idea that the way groups interact is through power, oppression versus uh, being oppressed, um, that idea is what underlies the whole diversity, equity, and inclusion movement. It makes the idea that white individuals continue to uh, suppress and oppress black individuals, black patients, whether it's students applying to schools or patients being seen in the clinic, as opposed to the fact that people, you know, try to get along as well as they can. And certainly physicians try to care for their patients as well as possible. This isn't to say that someplace somewhere there isn't a biased individual, but this doesn't characterize the profession. And this certainly doesn't explain healthcare disparities. And we, and we can get into what they're from um, a little later as well. But this idea that this is the way we need to organize the world has what's led to anti-Semitism now, because what's viewed in this particular Israeli-Palestinian conflict is an example of the oppressor. In this case, the Israelis yeah. are oppressing the Palestinians. And, yeah. the, and this is a power dynamic that's going on, just like it's viewed with white doctors and black patients, a power dynamic that's going on that's leading to oppression. And, and once you... Wait, wait, just to be clear, you're not saying that that 
that Israelis are actually oppressing the Palestinians. No, no, no. This is the this is the basis for these anti-Semitic feelings. This is the worldview that these individuals who are marching down the street and screaming Palestinian slogans have the worldview, and the and the other. Uh, supporters, the students that support them, have this worldview that this is the way we need to organize our world. This comes from the postmodern philosophers like Michel Foucault and others, Derek Hall. These are individuals who were in academia, created this theory of how groups interact, that this is the nature of group interaction, and now it's getting applied Un, un, without thinking, without real knowledge to the current political situations and, and really to American life. So once you take that, that point of view and view people through this lens of critical race theory, which puts people into groups as opposed to thinking about them as individuals, then you can see that when you encounter a situation where you have one group that you claim is an oppressor and another group that's that you claim is oppressed, the, the 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 ethics of of that worldview are that the oppressor can only do wrong and the oppressed can only do right. right and and that and it doesn't matter what the facts are it doesn't matter what reality is that's what dominates and that's why these students who are really so ignorant of what the history of all this is are marching down the street and talking like this well so let's go into medicine what's happening here in medicine so now we saw that there are a bunch of physicians who have been seen pulling down the posters of um, of captives in, uh, in in Gaza? Those individuals, as I said, clearly you have to wonder about their ethical standards, what they believe. And if you're a Jewish patient who walks in there, let's say you have a Jewish star on a pendant around your neck, uh, or you you're an Orthodox Jew and come in with some regalia that that represents your particular religious views. Are those doctors who have expressed this sort of thing, are they going to treat them the same way they're going to treat everyone else? I think it's a legitimate concern that they, these patients are not going to get optimum optimum care. And, and my colleagues in, the, in that article in the New York Post uh, looked at some of the statistics of the way medical organizations have acted. So when Ukraine was invaded by Russia, 71% of medical associations like the Kidney Society, the Heart Association, and so on, made comments in support of Ukraine because it, it had been attacked by Russia. 46% of medical schools made some comment. Their public, uh, their websites, their public pronouncements were that they support Ukraine and, and are against what Russia did. When it came time for Israel in October 7th to look for support for what happened to them, only 11% of medical associations, as opposed to 71%, had anything to say about Israel and what had happened on October 7th, and only 3% of medical schools had anything to say. So in addition to those individual physicians that you mentioned who said things that were horrible and acted out that way, we also saw the entire medical establishment sort of saying, well, you know, we're not sure who's right or wrong in this. I know all these people were were brutalized, raped, murdered, shot, killed, families were destroyed, people were kidnapped, but there was some justification for that in their mind because these were people that they saw as being oppressed. And once you're oppressed, the morals are that you're allowed to do whatever you want and there and it can be explained and it can even be justified in in uh, attempt to fight off your oppression. This is so much against the Judeo-Christian ethic. It's so much against the American ideal of looking upon individuals as individuals and not as members of a group. So in Philadelphia, when they marched down the street in, in Center City, Philadelphia on Sunday night and attacked, and when I say attacked, I mean, you know, paused and screamed and yelled and chanted in front of a Jewish restaurant owned by a Jewish man who was born in Israel but but grew up as an American in Pittsburgh, um, that represents them just looking at, at Jews and saying, well, you're oppressors and, and we're not going to say whether it's right or wrong to blame you for something that's being that's happening 5,000 miles away that you have nothing to do with. Uh, it's you, you have any kind of relationship with Israel or any kind of relationship with the Jewish community. Uh, you are an oppressor and therefore we're allowed to do whatever we want and we're allowed to justify whatever was done to you. So unfortunately, there, there are a lot of... Um, there are a lot of Palestinian physicians. There are a lot of physicians that came from the Middle East. And there are a lot of American physicians that support this mentality as well. 
we're going to take a, um, a, we need to take a break now, but um, I'm glad that you ended there because I want to talk about that too uh, when we come back about how the nature of doctors has changed. I mean, the, 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 um, the demographic characteristics of doctors because America has imported so many foreign doctors because they didn't have enough medical schools to make enough doctors for Americans. And that I think is a big part of the problem too. So we need to take a break. Um, my guest again is Dr. Stanley Goldfarb. We are talking about anti-Semitism in medicine and all the other inequalities in medicine that is really making it dangerous for you as a patient. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Dr. Stanley Goldfarb. We're talking about anti-Semitism in medicine means no patient is safe. Because if that's how patients are going to be treated by the color of their skin or the religion that they are, um, that is not what medicine should be. And the fact that medical schools, I mean, I have been horrified um, in the past, I don't, I don't know how many years it's been stealthily growing, but like three, I would say at least, um, to see what's been happening to med medical schools, hospitals, medical schools taking in people based upon uh, how much social justice work that they have been doing, volunteer work and so on, not their grades, not their MCAT scores, their medical uh, college admission test scores. Um, I don't know about you, but if I'm laying in a hospital bed, I want the smartest guy in the room or gal in the room to be uh, my doctor, not the one who did the most work on social justice. Um, now, um, I wanted to, I, one of the things I want to get to now is how this has been happening. I mean, we've been talking about, my Dr. Goldbarb Barb has been talking about um, the effect of DEI, you know, and how uh, basically these, these schools are, are um, schools in the American, the American Medical Association of all places. I remember I went to the, when I was uh, trying to decide whether to go to medical school. I mean, I pretty much had decided when I was eight years old, I wanted to be a doctor. And then when I was a teenager, I decided I wanted to be a psychiatrist because I read Freud's interpretation of dreams. But be, before I actually went, I just wanted to make sure. And I went to Chicago where the American main office of the American Medical Association is. And I talked with someone about, because I said, you know, I don't just want to see patients in my office 
24-7. I want to do other things. I want to write. I want to, uh, you know, do media. I want to, um, I don't know, other things than just patient after patient after patient. And um, and I so I wanted to know, basically, if that was going to be possible as a doctor. So I have the hugest respect for the American Medical Association I, that I took a trip from New York <laughs> to, uh, to Chicago to get advice. Um, and and relied on that advice, and to so to see you know this sort of the the um, this once respectable institution of the AMA, not to mention all the all the medical schools and all that, uh, to see them sort of fall into this wokeness is just um, is just devastating. And so I have been trying to figure out how this all where did all these people come from who are making these rules in the AMA or in medical schools and so on. And um, I mean, besides, um, obviously these are people who who are uh, activists for DEI, but also I think what also has been happening is that because there aren't enough American medical schools to turn out enough American doctors, um, there has been gradually over the years, I mean, certainly compared to when I was in doing my um, internship in medicine and my residency in psychiatry, um, you know, there weren't, there were not that many foreign medical graduates. In fact, they made it very difficult for foreign medical graduates to become doctors in America. And I know this because I went to the University of Louvain in Belgium and went to medical school in French. And to get back here, um, I had to take all kinds of tests, you know, jump through all kinds of hoops. And nowadays, um, it is not that it is it is not that difficult at all because we need more doctors. And so I think a lot of the doctors who foreign doctors um, who went to foreign medical schools um, are who are coming in. Um, I would imagine that they are having a big role in in turning these schools and these and the AMA and so on woke. What do you think about that? Well, I'm, you know, I think that I think the the rod, if you will, is is deeper than that. So I think I think the problem with um, with medical institutions, you know, uh, I was listening to the the testimony today of the three university presidents to that Congress, that too, yes. which is which is quite interesting. But in one of the one of the comments was there is that when they did a survey of the Harvard faculty, the the Harvard Crimson, the school newspaper, did that. Eighty percent were liberals or or very liberal, uh, and one percent were conservative, something like that, and um, and so. The higher education enterprise is very much of a uh, of a, a left viewing world. Now, when you ask what are the values in that world, that world's values are those of critical race theory. That's what they really have decided represents the best way to think about American society and society in general, and that we need to do something to to free up those who are being oppressed, those who are being uh, Put upon by those who are exerting power over them. And so the individuals who run medical schools now came through those colleges. Mm. Those colleges have been uh, just rife with uh, pro proposing this kind of theory. And I must say that, you know, when I was at Penn, even many years ago, um, I, I encountered undergraduates who seemed to have the same sort of um, moral system, one that suggested that uh, everything was relative. People could be whatever they they wanted in the sense of how they looked, how they acted, what they thought about. Morality seemed to go out the window. And um, I think that what we're seeing now is that uh, this kind of mindset that's been so rife in the educational system is now coming a cropper. It's people who are running our institutions, running academia, running the arts. These are the people that now are have exerted great powerful over uh, great power over American culture. And unfortunately, they've adopted this view of thinking about people in groups and, and identity politics. I, I would urge your, your listeners to read a book recently called The Identity Trap by Yasha Munk, who's a, a man of the left, <clears throat> excuse me, a professor of political science at Johns Hopkins, who's attacked this idea because it's it all it does is lead to divisiveness. And now we're seeing that certainly in the in the world of anti-Semitism. 
Now, so the institutions have been captured, the medical schools, the medical associations by these individuals. And I think part of it is that we see what's happened now with anti-Semitism and, and the response to it by students. They march, they're very aggressive, they, they're very disruptive, and nobody wants that who has a, a, a an important job in a large institution. They don't want disruptions. They don't want people marching on their on them, occupying their offices, coming with flags, waving, and so on. They don't want people standing as they did in the back of the congressional hearing today with, with their hands painted red and, you know, calling for a ceasefire now. They, they don't want disruptions. And yet the left these students and these kids and these uh, uh, practitioners of critical race theory, they're very disruptive. So in order to avoid something that's that's very disruptive and in order to, to go along with what they've learned in school for years, most of these organizations, most of the medical establishment has adopted this point of view of the left. Now, I think one of the things that one of the congressional uh, people pointed out in the testimony today is, you know, 50% of the country voted for Donald Trump. Whatever you think about Donald Trump, clearly half the country has a view that conservative issues are something that they feel some affinity to. So to have a, a university like Harvard have 80% liberal and 1% conservative, it clearly doesn't reflect the country's kind of mentality. There needs to be more intellectual diversity in these organizations. And these medical groups need to become less political and just focus on teaching students, but they're, but they're very political. Now, as far as the immigrant physicians, uh, look, um, you know, my father was born in, in Odessa, you know, in 1897 uh, and came to the United States in 1907. I'm, I'm all for immigrants that come to this country and want to become my Americans. Grandparents. My and grandparents do... came from uh, Russia and Austria um, and Poland as well. So, yes. Sure. So, 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 but on the other hand, there's no question that many of the physicians that have been identified, like the, like the anti-Semitism campaign that's on Twitter, which takes pictures of people and identifies them. These have been individuals from the Middle East someplace. And, um, you know, they have names that are, you know, very suggestive of, of that. And okay, it's, it's perfectly fine for them to have an opinion that supports their political views, that's okay. But it's not okay for them to call for the, you know, the death of Jews. It's not okay for them to pull down posters that represent, you know, the these hostages and, and our concern for these hostages. It's not okay for them to make the kinds of tweets that, you know, you, you quoted that, you know, talk about, um, you know, denying the reality of what video shows what the what the what the Hamas was very proud of that they did a horrible terrorist attack and and so uh, you know I think that uh, you know the point is that we need to to deal with reality here we need to deal with the the, the basics of American life that treat everybody as an individual and if these in, these folks from other countries don't want to share the American view of treating people as individuals and not thinking about people as members of group, whether they be black, whether they be Jewish, whatever they be, um, you know, that's a real problem. And our, our, our immigration system is failing us if people aren't able to properly integrate into American life and accept the American ideals. We're not a perfect country. We've had a, we've done many sins in the past, but it's a country that's moved as far ahead as it could. That's, you know, as the famous Winston Churchill statement about America, Americans will try every, uh, will, will do the right thing after they've tried every other alternative. And I think that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing a country that's that's trying to do the right thing here and people marching and screaming about um, about support for Israel, support for the Jewish people and support and, and attacking Jews simply because they're Jewish in this country and have some affinity for Israel. It just is outside the bounds of what American life should have. Well, you know, and that's a good point, a scary point. Um, but I guess I hadn't really thought about, you know, uh, I mean, I talk about how our elementary schools have become madrasas, you know, basically teaching people, teaching little kids um, to hate America and, um, you know, basically to become their own kind of terrorists, like like what we're seeing with the protesters, um, you know, just like madrasas in the Middle East teach teach little boys and girls to, uh, especially boys, to be to become terrorists. Um, so, it, but this is also, I hadn't really 
I mean, I guess it's true that um, even though it's gotten worse and it's going, it's been going down to lower and lower grades, um, I guess there have been enough years for those people who have been <laughs> taught all this left wokeism and so on early on, if not in elementary school, then middle school, and uh, that they are now um, in medical school, you know, that it's, that it's not just from people coming from from some other country. No, 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 not at all. This is America's, <laughs> there's a lot of guilt to go around here about this. Yes. I mean, this is, you know, but this is, um, I mean, it just shows because it's, it seemed to me that, um, I mean, when everybody else was falling, you know, falling into wokeism and so on and, and everything was being destroyed, I thought, well, it's not going to be doctors or not going to be psychiatrists. These are people who have more intelligence. Than I must, I must <laughs> say the American Psychoanalytic Association could be the worst of them all. I mean, it's the, the, uh, the latest materials from them is that they want to go into diversity, equity, inclusion, and okay. social justice more than anything else. And, um, you know, and this is, uh, this is very dangerous because what people need from their physicians is to be treated and to, and to have their healthcare improved and not to have lessons on social justice. And, and I just want to say, I know we're coming to the end of our time, but that, you know, our organization, our website, do no harm medicine.org is, uh, it's one word, do no harm medicine.org, uh, is a place where, you know, we have over 6,000 members now, as I said, and, it's a place that people can get information for us. We're trying to, you know, put the truth out there. We we evaluate the medical literature and we we have references to all the things that we write. And you can read about our legislative and legal efforts as well, which I think have been quite successful over the last year and a half. Yes, really amazing. I, I would absolutely um, uh, suggest that you all go to that website, uh, donoharmmedicine.org. Uh, Dr. Goldfarb, thank you so much. Um, this has been <laughs> devastating, but very important, <laughs> very important information um, that people realize. It, I just, you know, my heart um, really bleeds for this country. I've been doing a lot over the last year, since 9-11, actually, um, to to try to stop America from going down the tubes in all, all different ways, particularly wokeism. So thank you. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.